So if you want to go ahead and flip on over to John chapter 12, you can just pull it up on your phone or grab an analog Bible. We'll be in John chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 12 through 19. John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. Before we read God's Word, I just want to extend the welcome that we extend every single week. To all who are weary and need rest. To all who mourn and long for comfort. To all who feel worthless and wonder if God cares. To all who fail and desire strength. To all who sin and need a Savior. To all who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And to whoever will come, this church opens wide her doors and offers welcome in the name of the Lord Jesus. Let's look at John chapter 12, starting in verse 12. And we'll read all the way down to verse 19. John 12, starting in verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things that had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Let's pray together. God, we're so grateful for the mercy that you've shown us in Jesus. We're grateful, Lord, that even in the midst of a chaotic world, we have a conquering king. We have this great hope. We have Christ, the sure and steady anchor for our souls. Lord, would you root us and ground us in your word this morning? God, we pray that you would use your word to transform our hearts and our minds. God, that we would leave um, this gathering together, even though we're scattered across the pl- all over the city and the county and who knows, Lord, where else people may be watching. God, we pray and we ask humbly, Lord, would you stir our hearts, stir our affections, give us great hope in Jesus. Cause our hearts to leap and rejoice knowing that our hope is, is not here in this earth, but is stored in treasures above. That Christ is our treasure, Christ is our hope, and that we long with bated breath for His return. Give us strength for the days to come. Give us courage to face whatever the circumstances. Give us love to, yes, wash our hands, but then to wash feet as we seek to love our neighbors and as we seek to, as we seek to love others, even if that means isolating ourselves for a time. We are so grateful for the truth of Jesus. It's in His name and by His power we pray. Amen. So today we're talking about Jesus being the conquering King. So as we think about kings, it's not something we're used to here in America. We have presidents and other elected officials that represent us, but it's actually true that the United States once had an emperor. Believe it or not, it's true, or at least it was true in the confused mind of Joshua A. Norton. 
So if you don't know who that is, that's okay. Norton lived in San Francisco during the gold rush days of the 1800s, and he was a pretty colorful character, just to say the least. So there was this speculation in the rice market that brought him to financial ruin and just something snapped in his brain and he decided to declare himself the emperor of the United States. Um, and it may have been a practical joke, it just may have been the result of a clouded mind, but whatever the initial reason, Norton's pretending soon grew into a rather large delusion. In 1859, he actually published a proclamation that he was emperor according to an act of the California legislator. <laughs> he found a sword, uh, he stuck a plume in his hat, he found a cape, and he marched the streets in a colorful costume. And the citizens of San Francisco thought it was pretty funny, and they amused themselves and played the game with him. They gave him recognition with free tickets to special events. He was invited to galas and op on opening nights. Um, they even allowed him to collect a small tax and issue his own currency. Pretty wild. And all of this was done in the spirit of fun, but to Norton, this was serious. This was serious business. In fact, he actually expanded his authority to not only be emperor of the United States, but to be the protector of Mexico. Um, so there's that. And when he died in 1880, more than 10,000 curious people came and attended his funeral. It's one of the largest funerals to ever take place in California. And here's what's weird about that. Norton lived and died in his own delusion of grandeur. He never hurt anyone. In fact, he actually made a lot of people smile and chuckle, um, but most people didn't take him seriously. Make no mistake about it, Joshua Norton was never really the emperor, right? If he decided, you know what, I'm taking this seriously and tried to confront the U.S. government, he would have been disposed of pretty quickly, right? More than likely, he would have been confined to an insane asylum, but nonetheless, he bought into his delusion. Imagine the poor soul who enters eternity convinced that all of life is about him, that he or she was the focus of the universe. And what a shock it would be to find that the Bible's title for Jesus is accurate, right? Jesus is the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords, and no pretend emperor is ever going to take his place. And that's what we're talking about today, that really scripture, our lives, it's not about me or you, it's about Jesus that Jesus is indeed the conquering king. And Jesus is concerned with his kingdom. Jesus often spoke about the kingdom of God. It's really the central theme in his message. He both preached and demonstrated that the kingdom of God had broken into the world in his coming. In his preaching, he teaches his disciples how to enter the kingdom and the kind of lifestyle that this kingdom would lead to. In his miracles, what he does is he gives a visual, physical demonstration of the restoring and transforming power of the king and the kingdom. Now, what we catch up to in our text today is a peculiar story. You see, there's, this is a week or so prior to his crucifixion, and Jesus does something that made it clear that he himself was the king in the kingdom of God. As we read, he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. 
And this story fits into the storyline of Scripture and the Bible's portrayal of Jesus. Now, we've already talked about over the last couple weeks that Jesus was the seed of the woman promised in Genesis 3, that Jesus is the true prophet, that Jesus is the great high priest. And what, what, what it is is these stories not only run all the way from Genesis through Revelation, but they also, in a way, in a sense, they intersect with one another. All these titles, all these offices of Jesus. And a lot of you, maybe you're at home right now and you're teaching your kids uh, for the first time, and that's okay. We're all figuring it out. So think of these various themes in terms of a Venn diagram, you know, the circles that kind of intersect together. These are interlocking circles that we learn about in school, and the point at which they all meet with one another, they all sit around the person and of the Lord Jesus Christ, His work of salvation, His work of restoration, right? At the center of all of these different offices, titles, and stories is Jesus. Something maybe you were taught in Sunday school, maybe you heard this before, that we would do well to remember is this. In the Old Testament, Jesus is predicted. In the Gospels, Jesus is revealed. In the Acts of the Apostles, Jesus is preached. In the letters, In the epistles, that is, Jesus is explained. And in the book of Revelation, Jesus is expected. Now, that list is not exhaustive, right? It's not sophisticated. But what it does is it helps us as we work through the Bible. Because here's the deal. When we open God's Word and we start to read, whether that's in the morning or evening or whenever we try to spend time in the Word, the Bible is going to be this impenetrable mystery at every single point, at every turn of every page, until we take our eye, until we look and see that we have taken our eyes away from Christ. If we are not looking for Jesus in the pages of Scripture, it will always be confounding. It'll be confusing. And it won't make sense because we cannot understand the Bible unless we understand that it is the story of Jesus. We have to read always looking for Jesus in every single page. We lose our way around the Bible when we fail to look for Jesus. The story of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on the first Palm Sunday is really a case point for us. What's happening in this familiar passage? I think sometimes the most familiar verses, they're often the occasion for the most superficial reading, right? This particular passage, we read it almost every year on Palm Sunday, which today is not, right? So we're reading this kind of out of step here. But here's the thing, despite our familiarity with the triumphal entry scene, we maybe haven't caught the significance of what's happening here. So what's the message? What does it mean, right? Why does this passage matter? Well, let's jump there first and see this, that Jesus is the unexpected king. Jesus is the unexpected king. So if you read the Bible and you find yourself confused sometimes, that's okay. In fact, if that's the case, you and I are in good company. Look at verse 16 of our passage. Here's what it says. It says, His disciples did not understand these things at first. And this is something that we see all over the Gospels, right? They tell us so many times in the Gospels that the disciples just didn't know what Jesus was doing. They had no clue. And this is so helpful for us because we are all learning. We are all growing. None of us have arrived, right? I don't care if you've got your MDiv, your PhD, whatever. None of us have arrived. We are all still learning and growing, and Jesus is transforming us, but our lives are still very much under construction. So we all have a lot to learn, and that is why the Bible is a gift for us as we live under its teaching. Here, here's the disciples, right? And they're not getting it. 
In fact, a bit later, they gather together in the upper room for the Passover and Jesus tells them, look, hey, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. I'll come back and I'll take you to where I am. And you, you, you know the way where I'm going. But the disciples looked at him. They were totally lost. And Thomas was incredulous, basically saying, we don't know what the heck you're talking about, Jesus. We don't know where you're going. And Philip's ju- Philip just jumps in and he's like, why don't you just show us God the Father, right? Just show us God the Father and that'll be enough for us. They're, they're totally clueless, as if Jesus wasn't the revelation of God the Father to them, sitting there in the flesh right in front of them. But that's the case, right, for these disciples. They're always confused. They're always kind of catching on late. Jesus is having to explain parables. And Jesus, in that moment, encourages them that for them, and really for us, a helper would come. That the Holy Spirit, He's going to come, and He's going to guide them into all truth. Now, when we read interactions like that, it makes sense to us because we know the end of the story, right? We're able to read the Gospels from beginning to end. We're able to read the Bible, really, as a whole from beginning to end. We have the New Testament letters that really dive into and explain and outline the Gospel for us. So we have to know this when we read passages like this, right? None of us could sit here and go, oh, I know a lot about this, right? I got it. Know it. Check the box. I'm ready to go. I've heard the Palm Sunday stuff before. I can move on. You see, if we do that, we've already determined what we could possibly get out of it. There there can't be anything here for us to learn, but we can't do that. There's always more meat in Scripture than perhaps we see for the first time. Let's not do that, Coram Deo. Instead, let's hump in ordinary lives, just folks who are living their day by day, and something extraordinary breaks in. Now, why are all these people here? Right. What's Jesus done that's gotten all these people so excited? Well, again, this is significant. We have to think of the context. Jesus is coming in. He's doing his triumphal entry. And what happens is Jesus had just risen Lazarus from the dead. Just a few days ago, after Lazarus had died, he had gone to the tomb and had called, La- called Lazarus to come forth. And his dead friend had come walking out of the grave. And when Lazarus came out of the tomb, Jesus gave a command that his grave clothes should be removed. Then we are told that many of the Jews who were there to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, put their faith in him. They trusted him and they did, they're blown away by this. And so they put their faith wholeheartedly in Jesus. And that follows with great frustration from the religious leaders. They start hatching a plot to kill Jesus. Now, that's a pretty big deal, right? It would be a huge deal today if someone got out of the grave and was alive again. So you can imagine the whole community is buzzing about Lazarus and about Jesus. You've got a community who wants to see Jesus, the one who did this, and maybe even see Lazarus, the guy who was dead but is now alive. And yet, all the while, the chief priest is furious. He is planning not only to kill Jesus, but even to kill Lazarus because so many people are starting to believe in Jesus. So think of it. All of these people with their deeply religious background, with their amazing heritage, their knowledge of the scriptures, they're trying to weave together the strands of the messianic expectation and the chief priest and the others that were there They got it all dreadfully wrong. And here, in the most unexpected way, is the answer to all their expectations. But they could not recognize him. That's what scripture says. Truly, he came to his own people, and his own people did not receive him. 
You see, in our digital age, I think we're used to getting the whole picture, right? We can instantly look back on vacations. I mean, we will walk away from a, somewhere we took a trip to, a hike, whatever, and we could start scrolling on our phones of all the pictures we took. We can just zip through all kinds of scenes that explain how we reached the final scene. The same is true for us in Scripture. We can look at all the layers. We can look at all the things that, that kind of put together and piece together the moments. We can look at where Jesus arrives as king, right? We can go all the way back to his birth. We can see Mary. She's treasuring in her heart the news from the angel Gabriel. We can see her pondering the words, and he will reign on the throne of his father, David. We can sing Christmas songs, right? We do this every year. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark street shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. And here it is. All the hopes, all the fears, all the anticipation, all the dreams, all the Old Testament promises of the one who would come, who would embody the great prophetic announcement about the Messiah, they're now somehow coming to fulfillment in Bethlehem. Then we can fast forward 30 years to the, and do the same thing to find this triumphant scene on the road up to Jerusalem. The king is coming. Jesus mounts a donkey and rides into Jerusalem surrounded by this huge, noisy crowd. We do not have any other record of Jesus riding a donkey, right? This is the only place it happens. And we have to ask the question, what kind of king rides on a donkey? What kind of king wears a crown that is woven with thorns? What kind of king is dressed up in somebody else's robe and is made to look foolish, a figure of, of mockery, and is cruelly made fun of by soldiers? And here we see this great paradox that confronts anybody who reads the Bible. This is unexpected. This is the paradox that threw off many of the people who were looking for the coming one. They cried, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. But they witnessed a whole series of scenes in which Jesus was despised and rejected. Jesus was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. What possibility was there that he could bring salvation? How could he bring safety? How could he bring success when he could not apparently secure his own safety? His ministry had led him to such a seemingly shameful end. Jesus is king, but not in the way that many expected. The Westminster Catechism asks this question. It says, how doth Christ execute the office, the ministry of a king? And this is precisely the question that forces us to ask this question, right? These scenes force us to ask the question, how does Jesus offer, execute this office of being a king? And here's what the catechism says. It says, in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all of his and our enemies. So, if we look back to what we've been talking about over the last several weeks, we consider how Christ came as a prophet, again, to deal with our ignorance. He came, as we talked about last week, as a priest to deal with our alienation, to lead us into God's presence. But now we come and we see this unexpected king. And as a king, 
He comes to subdue all the tyrannical forces that are aligned against us. And yes, those that fight within us too. Jesus has come to subdue our enemies. But how does he do this? Well, that's where we get to our second point, that Jesus is the conquering king. Jesus is the conquering king. So as we ask the question, how does Jesus conquer? We want to look at three different dimensions. We want to first look at how is Jesus king in relation to our salvation? Then we want to look to how is he king in relation to the cosmos, right? To all that we see. And finally, how is Jesus king in relation to the future? What will happen? So let's start with salvation. Salvation. How does Jesus exercise his reign for our salvation? Well, Jesus accomplished everything necessary to save us at the cross. So let's look at Colossians 2. Colossians 2 verses 13 through 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That's good stuff. I'm sorry, I'm getting pumped. Here's the deal. Paul also says in Galatians that Jesus' death on the cross meant Jesus had borne the curse that we deserve for our sin. More than this, okay, catch this, Jesus has done everything necessary to deliver us from the power of death. The tyranny of sin, the tyranny of guilt, it's made visible in death. God had said to Adam and Eve, in the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. This is our inherited condition. Our death is the corrosive, degenerative impact of sin and judgment. The weakness, frailty, disintegration, and loss that's involved in death, these are the final evidence, evidences in this world that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But listen... Listen to what the author of Hebrews says. He says this in Hebrews 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That means Jesus became a man. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So here's what Jesus has done. Jesus has done everything that we needed to be saved from sin. He's done everything we needed in order for us to be saved from the judgment of death. And he's done everything necessary to free us from the bondage that we had to the devil. In a word, Jesus has done everything we need done for ourselves, but could never do for ourselves. The evidence of his victory is, of course, the resurrection. Death could not hold him. It's like a loud amen being pronounced on his work by the Father. Jesus was raised physically from the dead as a sign that his sacrifice of sin had been accepted. It was as if the judge was saying, you have paid the penalty. You've paid the penalty that the law demanded. You are now free to go. Clearly, it was also the sign that he had broken the power of death because it's not possible for Jesus to be held in its grip. So Jesus crushes the power of Satan 
Then he spends a period of 40 days meeting with his disciples. And imagine how incredible the lessons on biblical teaching and resurrection life must have been. Imagine being taught about new life by the one who had said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. Whoever and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. But how is it that Jesus' resurrection leads to the resurrection of those who believe in him? How can it be, as scripture makes abundantly clear, that because Jesus rose from the grave, it is now impossible for those of us who believe to not be raised? Well, here's the biblical logic. You and I, when we become believers, are in Christ. We talk about this. The word for that is union with Christ. We are therefore, again, we're now united to him. We can never be separated from Christ. Christ has been raised from the dead. Therefore, because he, we are in Him, we too have been raised and will be raised from the dead. This is why resurrection is described as the first fruits. It's the pledge. It's the assurance of a final harvest. So this is important, Coram Deo, that Jesus reigns as King in our salvation. Why? Because we don't have to fear death. So much about why so many people are in panic is because they are afraid of death. But we are now freed from that slavery. We are freed to resurrection life. That we can have hope like the Apostle Paul had in prison, in shame, in fear of looming death. We have hope. We see also that Jesus is not only king of our salvation. Jesus is king over all. He is king over the cosmos. Scripture teaches us to think of the kingly reign of Jesus in cosmic terms. Again, this is what Colossians 1 says. Colossians 1, 15 and 17. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth. Now, Does this make a difference to us if we know that Jesus is the king of the cosmos when we read history? I think it does. Does it make a difference as we study medicine? Absolutely. What about philosophy? Do you think acknowledging that Jesus is the king of the cosmos affects our view of the world? Let's keep reading. Colossians 1, jump down to verses 16 and 17. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. There is then this great cosmic dimension to the kingship of Jesus. Here's the deal. Jesus is the source, the sustainer, the goal of all created reality. The universe was made by him. It is, it is providentially sustained by him. It is utterly dependent on him. And this is massive for you and I now more than ever. As Christians, we must learn to think properly, to think biblically. See, only when we know that Jesus is the king of the cosmos, only when we are sure of this can we then turn on the news. Then we can begin to scroll. 
without joining the ranks of the gloomy or singing in the choir of the fearful. Because to be in Christ is mind-stretching. It's life-transforming. It is a mind-altering experience to bow before the authority of what is said concerning the cosmic Christ who reigns over all. Because it changes our perspective on everything. Everything is different. Because if we look up at the sky at night and we are able to see the stars and the planets and we are to stare in wonder at the Milky Way. Here's the deal. If the Milky Way contains, as astronomers now tell us, 300 to 400 billion stars and there's only one galaxy among possibly hundreds of billions of galaxies, then we, just tiny little people, are in need of Colossians 1, 16 and 17. We need that just to be able to get to bed at night and to wake up in the morning and feel that we have any security at all in the universe. And we are helped by reading the prophet Isaiah's great words. Here's what he says, Lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? Who brings out their hosts by number, calling them by name? And by this reminder from the prologue of the Gospel of John where it says, All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In a cosmos of otherwise impenetrable mystery, in a day where the world feels absolutely chaotic, every day it seems like there's looming terrible news, every day it feels like we don't know when this is going to end, we are greatly helped by knowing that Jesus is King. Jesus is King over the cosmos. And in addition to that, as we consider what's going to happen next, when is this going to end, where do we go, we look to see that Jesus is the conquering king of the future. You know, you and I, what we do is we tend to think in futuristic terms. I think many of us, we want to plan and we don't know how to plan. We're kind of, we're kind of wondering, where do we go from here? What's going to happen? Again, think earlier of the Venn diagram illustration, all the circles that coalesce on one point we now begin to see how the various biblical descriptions of the Lord Jesus intersect with each other. The same Bible themes, the same passages keep recurring, and we get to 1 Corinthians 15, and we discover that there's actually an order to this. There's an order to resurrection. First, there's Christ, the firstfruits. Then there is us believers, we when he comes, those who belong to him. Here's what it says in 1 Corinthians in verses 24 and through 26 of chapter 1. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Coram Deo. You and I have to see this magnificent tapestry into which images of Christ as the ascended king are woven. Truly, the head that was once crowned with thorns is now crowned with glory. The spillage, as it were, from his ascension is seen in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit so that now we are indwelled by the very presence of God. Jesus ascended in order to ask His Father to keep His promise to send the Spirit to His people that you and I might experience every single spiritual blessing. And when the Holy Spirit comes, He makes much of the Word of God in our lives and He constantly points us back to Jesus, to the Son of the living God. And all this compromises the glorious benefits of Christ's triumph and kingship. 
This, with all of these elements included, should be central to our thinking as Christians. We should always have this peace, this security that Jesus is king and Jesus is in control. Right? The future dimension should control our perspective on everything because we know what will happen, that one day we will be in glory with the king of the ages. And certainly that affects the way that we live in the world right here, right now. So how should we view the world? Well, the Christian views the world in terms of the good and the bad, yes, but also the new and the perfect. The new and the perfect because when God created the cosmos, he made everything in it. And he made everything good. And then came the fall of man and everything went bad. But in Jesus, all is made new. Indeed, Paul says if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. If Christ's resurrection took place, right, in his resurrection, there is then a renewal process that will eventually involve everything, the whole cosmos, right? The creation itself will be free from its bondage to corruption, Scripture tells us. And we live in anticipation of that day, of the day the new creation will be realized in all of its perfection. So those of us who are underneath, those who are underneath Christ's footstool will at last fall down along with many more, and they will all acknowledge that he is king. And so we may learn to begin the day affirming that Christ is king, Jesus is Lord. That's how we have to start. We have to wake up and say, Jesus is king. Man, this is so important that we develop this practice. Guys, I'm telling you, if we keep scrolling major mass media, if we keep scrolling new news, we are going to overwhelm ourselves to the point of despair. We have to look to the king of the ages. We have to look at the one who is the king over our salvation, the king of the cosmos, the king of the future. It's important to develop this practice of affirming central gospel truths as we wake up to a new day saying to ourselves, the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Today is the 22nd of March. Today, the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Coram Deo, we can look at our phones and we can just go totally and utterly to despair, right? We can be scrolling before we go to bed. We can see chaos. We can see all the economical struggles that are looming. We can see the disturbing and distressing realities. And still, deep within our being, we can say, but Christ reigns. Christ reigns from the beginning of the day to the end of its day. Every single day of my life, Jesus is still king. We say this as God's people scattered across the globe. We have become perhaps, I think, more globally aware than we have ever been. And all across the globe, right now, there are people who are under the same kingship as you and I. What amazing and beautiful picture this is. That here we are as God's people throughout the world. And as those in one time zone are going to sleep, There are those in another time zone that are waking up. And as they do, they are saying, the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Here I am. I'm in North Korea. I can hardly function in many areas of my life. But Jesus Christ is king. Here I am in Tokyo. I'm in the busiest city in Japan. There's so much going on in my day to to take my mind off of the truth. But here I am. And Jesus Christ is king. Here I am in Morganton, North Carolina where people are ransacking grocery stores and freaking out, where I'm not sure where my next paycheck is going to come from, where my kid is at home driving me crazy. But Jesus Christ is King. 
And so God's people rise at every hour of the day to praise Him in every time zone in the world. Why? Because He reigns. Jesus' reign extends throughout time. Right? His empires rise and fall. Jesus' kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. It continues to grow and triumph, and it will last forever. So what does this mean for me and you? Well, we don't just say Jesus is king or Jesus is Lord just out of some kind of personal devotion. When Paul wrote of the day that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, he's not describing the devotion of the worshiper, but the identity of the one who is being worshiped. What he's saying is he is proclaiming the divinity and identity of Jesus. Here is the deal. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. This is not a statement about my attitude. This is not a statement about my circumstances. This is not a statement about how I feel about Jesus at this particular moment. It is a statement of who Jesus is. Jesus is Lord. He is Lord. He is King. And since Jesus is Lord and God, since He is King and Savior, that impacts all of my life. That means I don't develop my own convictions on how I live. I look to my King's Word. You and I, we don't rewrite the New Testament or the New Testament documents. Why? Because Jesus is King. And this is the King's Word. Now, I don't have the right to behave in any way that I please. My behavior must be marked by obedience to my King. The reign of Jesus will also influence my business practices. Right? It will affect the way I go to work tomorrow, whether that's at home in isolation or whether that's at work distance from my coworkers. It affects my relationship with my children. It affects my relationship with my parents. It reflects my relationship with my, uh, with my wife or with your husband or with your roommate or with your friends and family and everyone and so on and so on. In addition, you and I have no right to think that we can be disenfranchised or disengaged from the people of God because our Lord and King is also the head of the body of the church. It is in company with others who have been brought under Jesus' Lordship that we both benefit and make a contribution. That means that we should not only obey His commands, but we should enjoy His company. Now more than ever, you and I need the people of God And though we cannot gather in a physical sense, let's not stray from each other as we have digital means. What a blessing of God. We could have been alive during the pandemic of the Spanish flu when millions of people died, where we had to just sit in isolation, unable to talk with one another. But instead, you and I have been given this great gift of technology where we can plug into each other and say, how's it going? Can I pray for you? We can FaceTime someone. We can um, Zoom or Skype or whatever. We can video chat them and say, hey, I'm with you. I know that you're at home by yourself right now, but I'm with you right here in spirit, praying for you. And I'll sit here and I'll watch a movie with you on Zoom. I don't care. We can be with the people of God. Jesus is a king who has made himself accessible. Jesus is wonderfully approachable. Right? You and I, we have no right of immediate access to the British monarch. We can't go to the Buckingham Palace in London and be like, I want to talk to the Queen about what's going on. And in the same way, we can't call up the President and say, hey, I need the latest information on this COVID-19 stuff. Can you tell me what's up? But you and I do have immediate access to the King of Kings, to the Lord of Lords. Moreover, He's not only our King, He is our Savior. And He's not only our Savior, He's our friend. 
Jesus says this in John, that that he is a friend to sinners. And and we, we sing the hymn, there's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. So we can and we must come to Jesus with all of our fears, with all of our failures, with all of our stresses, with all of our disappointments, with all of our losses, with all of the needs of our loved ones, and say, Jesus, you are the king over all of this. There's so much here that I can't handle, but you can. There's so many aspects of this life that are overwhelming me. But, but Lord, we come to you now. We come before you. We lay this at your feet, and then we can rise to our feet and go out into the day and into all of our days to declare, to declare this great and amazing truth that Christ is King. I don't know about you, but I love reading stories of hymn writers because it puts color into the old songs that we sing. There's the great old hymn, All Hell the Power of Jesus' Name, right? All Hell the Power of Jesus' Name, Let Angels Prostrate Fall. It was written by Edward Pyrenet. Edward was this gifted preacher, but he was very timid. He felt very uncomfortable ever making much of himself. He only wanted to make much of Jesus. He didn't want to be known or praised. One time, Uh, John Wesley just put him on the spot and said, look, you're going to be preaching this morning. Just announce to the church. And Edward looked at him and said, well, I guess I'm going to go and deliver the greatest sermon ever preached. He got up and he just read from Matthew the Sermon on the Mount. He always wanted to point people to Jesus over and above him because he knew who Jesus was. Jesus was king. Singing that song growing up, I sang it all the time. And now... Reading his story, I read it differently. Here's a verse from it. Let every tongue and every tribe responsive to his call, to him all majesty ascribe and crown him Lord of all. Shortly before he died, on January 2nd, 1792 in Canterbury, he uttered these last words. Glory to God in the height of his divinity. Glory to God in the depth of his humanity. Glory to God in all his sufficiency. Into his hands, I commend my spirit. That was the 1790s in Canterbury. It's now two centuries later. And Jesus Christ was king then. And Jesus Christ is still king now. Cheer up, you saints of God. He is king. Let's pray. God, we come before you acknowledging your greatness, your glory, your grandeur. Lord Jesus, help us to live in this truth that you reign as king over our lives. You have brought into our world newness. God, help us to see renewal even in the midst of chaos. Would we not live in dread of what may come, but would we even see, Lord, with gospel eyes the opportunities we may have as the church of the living God to proclaim hope in a world that feels hopeless. So many people have been blinded by the comforts of their life to not see the disparity of where they are at before the face of God. But Lord, now you are taking comforts away. God, we know that sin is the reason that this virus exists, that it's by our own doing, by our own disobedience that sin entered the world and brought with it death and decay. We know, God, that somehow you are so good that you use even darkness, Lord. 
You use even brokenness, God. You allow these things and you bring about our good and your glory. And so, Lord, we pray now, would you do that? God, humbly we ask that you would bring an end to this virus. God, that there would be viral medications that would work. There would be an expedited process to get a safe uh, vaccine that people would not die, Lord, but that instead they'd have the opportunity to hear the good news of the gospel. God, we pray for those who are struggling now, small business owners, those who work in the service industry, those who don't know where their next paycheck is coming from. God, would you supply their every need? Lord, would you use us as the church to surround them with comfort and encouragement to help in any way that we possibly can? Would we seek to love our neighbors, those who are elderly, those who may be immune compromised? Lord, would we seek to love them well? God, I pray that more than anything, you would make much of yourself in this. Lord Jesus, you are good. You are great. You are glorious. You are gracious. We love you, King Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.